Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. G. Ryan Anson is an entrepreneur, early stage investor, and philanthropist focused on using this holistic combination to generate returns and positive impact for those in the targeted communities wherein he works. Ryan, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. To get things started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? My very short introduction certainly does no justice to your uh, extensive bio. So please uh, tell us a bit more about who you are and what you do. Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, I am a, I often say, accidental entrepreneur. Uh, I, I think that entrepreneurialism can be a, a poison, a sickness, uh, and uh, a complicated life. And uh, I have enjoyed it quite a bit, um, following my nose into new areas, new industries, new geographies um, throughout my early career, uh, which started in my early teens. Um, and as you said, I... I try with everything that I do to make sure that I'm not um, duplicating efforts. I'm not going down one path that I, that I then need to double back and fix something. Um, what I often see in the world of social enterprise or um, within the uh, entrepreneurial communities where we care about the outcomes uh, from a triple bottom line perspective is people often create destruction while trying to succeed in any particular endeavor. And then they go back and try to do good. So someone, just as an example, could make a huge amount of money in oil and gas and then start to care, care about environmentalism and start donating there uh, at the end of life. And I've been really fortunate to come from a family that um, has been entrepreneurial for four or five generations um, and really sees the benefit in working holistically around your operating companies, your investments, your philanthropy, and even your, your community and, and friend level engagement. So that's what I do. It, it, and I get that that's really high level, but some people may ask, you know, what is the, what is the overlap or what is the through line that, that ties my early career together? 
between film, finance, uh, extractives in the diamond industry, now cannabis and, um, and all kinds of things after cannabis that I'm starting to work on. And um, the answer to what is the through line that people don't recognize, because all those things seem really scattered, but there are industries where the margin can be so great that you can give away money and prop up other entrepreneurs and be a great community member in everything that you do within those industries because of the margin, uh, instead of trying to succeed and then looking back and fixing your, your, uh, your problems in the wake. So Ryan, I know you as a typical entrepreneur, you have your fingers in a lot of pies and you've got a lot of different experience and probably true to entrepreneurial form. It's been un unstructured to say the least, but let's talk about the cannabis industry for a minute. Fred and I have quite a bit of experience with clients in the cannabis industry in, in various states, in various countries, various parts of the supply chain. Uh, I'd like to hear more about what made you get into the cannabis industry and what you have seen change and what you see coming down the pipe as well. Yeah, let's bifurcate those three chapters. Um, briefly, what got me in, um, legalization of cannabis was always a topic at our dinner table. Um, my, my grandfather uh, was what I lovingly refer to as, as a giraffe. He stuck his neck out uh, on behalf of others in many ways. He, he really helped lead the charge in the allowance of, of gay marriage across the United States uh, and he was also a powerful voice in uh, in the legalization movement way before it was in vogue. And so the cannabis industry was always, um, I, I was always aware of it, um, but only recently did we get involved commercially. And the way that happened was I was working in Sierra Leone uh, on a diamond mining initiative, uh, bringing transparency to alluvial mining uh, and allowing those mines to immediately go into agricultural use um, when the Ebola crisis hit in West Africa and I needed to leave. And um, so we'll, we'll return to bringing transparency in the, into the diamond world, uh, likely just through lab-grown stones now. Uh, however, as I came back to the United States, it was clear that an uncle of mine wanted to rid himself of a uh, previously operating asset in our family's portfolio, uh, which was a sh one of many shoe factories that we held and operated in, in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. And I always pledged to bring jobs back to Fitchburg after having watched the demise of many post-industrial zones in the United States. And, um, and so I thought this would be a really great spot for basil, strawberries, microgreens, and it turns out it wasn't uh, for a number of reasons, but it was ideal for uh, medicinal cannabis when I started getting involved in 2016. And um, now nearly six years later, the industry is booming. It's complex. Um, and I, I remain um, really engaged on the social justice side in a number of ways inside and outside of that operating company. I continue to invest in the industry uh, through the, the tidal waves that are bounding every day. Uh, in cannabis. Um, but it's been a fascinating journey. We're one of the larger wholesalers in Massachusetts. We're now branching into adult use retail uh, in 2022. Um, but really proud to have created jobs. People ask me, um, 
how is it going? And any any entrepreneur who's been in cannabis for um, this amount of time can tell you that that's there's a complicated answer there. Um, but having created hundreds of jobs and uh, helped to influence thousands more through um, through different initiatives within those industrial towns that I care about, um, we've done a lot of good. So the yardstick that I look at is how have we engaged the community? How have we, we created careers, not just jobs? And, um, and how are we helping people get off of more harmful substances from alcohol all the way up and down uh, onto cannabis or um, just living healthier lives? So uh, it's been a fantastic journey throughout the, the uh, six years in the industry. And I, I don't expect to leave completely, but I, I am looking at all kinds of other spaces. Uh, happy to double click on other aspects because you, you asked three questions in one. Well, I'm, I'm more curious about what you've seen from your entrepreneurial standpoint, right? I mean, you said that Boston's going to be rolling out or Massachusetts is rolling out quite a bit this year in 2022. So what are you seeing happening in the industry where you have eyes on it? I don't, you don't need to speculate, but what are you, what are you seeing? You know, are there, um, people always ask me this question. That's why I like to turn it around to, to entrepreneurs, right? As a business lawyer, people want to know what I see from my vantage point. And uh, I see a lot of different things depending on which state I'm working in uh, and kind of the general maturity of the market, you know, cannabis, uh, marijuana versus hemp. So it, whatever comes to mind, right? This is a, a free ranging conversation as if we were sitting around your very interesting dinner table. Yeah. Um, lots of things are happening um, and they're happening at a greater speed than ever. Um, when I got involved, the idea of a multi-state operator um, was just starting to emerge. Um, MedMen was raising money uh, to vertically integrate the first uh, MSO, and ideas were big and broad and scary and expensive. And my partner and I really felt that even in a small state like Massachusetts of about 7 million people, um, the goal should really be to run a great company, not to create a a uh, quick flip licensing structure, nor create a vapid um, public, publicly traded hold co um, that you just hold on to your haunches and pray that, that it all works out. And of course, there are five or six success stories of that, but there are probably around 10,000 or something like that, but definitely in the thousands of people that said they were going to raise a hundred million in a fund or that they're going to be the next big MSO or they're going to be the, you name the big company of cannabis, the Whole Foods of cannabis, the Amazon of cannabis, the Uber of cannabis, the this, the that. And almost unilaterally, those have failed. Um, there are, of course, needles in the haystack like any other uh, boom and bust cycle. I'm really glad to, to hold shares of some of them, um, a little bit because of spray and pray, a little bit because I, I was uh, able to diligence startup companies by using revolutionary clinics as, as the operating company. I could validate people's uh, assumptions or claims. And so I was able to get into some companies early and, and uh, appreciate and enjoy a little bit of that success. Um, but I said this is happening quicker than ever. Um, when a new when a state evolves its regulatory uh, position from nothing to med or from med to adult use um, or straight to adult use as it's happened a couple times, um, 
it used to be the case that everyone was throwing spaghetti against the wall, seeing what worked and making adjustments over time. Now, many years into the industry's uh, history, there are really successful operating companies. There are really successful strategies and financing in cannabis or finance in cannabis has evolved. When I started everything, be it real estate, an operating vertically integrated company or a, a new technology, everything was venture. Now there's, there, there, there are vehicles that are applicable to the different size, shape, stage of the company. And so you can approach this in a more sophisticated way. What's ironic is we're six years later in the industry than I stepped into it. Um, interest rates for early stage companies are pretty much the same, you know, uh, uh, painful 15, 16, 18% uh, plus warrants and all these other things that get into really predatory financing structures. And meanwhile, for the larger groups, because they've been de-risked in a different way, uh, or that's the perception, um, people are raising hundreds of millions of dollars at a whack. And that's very hard to keep up with. So um, I think what the result is, is whenever there's a new geography that becomes applicable, there's the same number or even more potentially of entrepreneurs that thinks that think that this is the holy grail. And <laughs> I can't express strongly enough that that's a really dangerous perception. Um, the tax structure of cannabis alone, 280E uh, tax code, um, makes this harder to succeed than almost any other industry. I often joke that I, I can't wait to just sell t-shirts on the beach in a non-regulated business um, with unlimited upside or unlimited growth potential, um, not hampered by these crazy rules. And... Um, when you when you overlay that with the illicit market or traditional market, um, cost of capital, taxes, complexity, and the fact that this is a harder race than ever, um, I really caution people, operators and family offices, uh, from thinking that this is easy or that if they grow it, they will come. Um, it's not an easy space. It's uh, the only thing easy about it is probably it's easy to get in over your head. I think that's a great summary. Uh, what about international? Do you have any experience uh, or any, any data points from your international exposure, international contacts about what's going on globally in, in either the marijuana or the hemp industries? Yeah, each each jurisdiction, regardless of what the boundary is termed, a state uh a continent, a country, um, a city. Um, each locale is really unique. Um, and the devil is in the details. So um, I, I was a, a GP of a fund in Hong Kong that invested in the space uh, most actively in 2018, did in 2019. And, um, and so we, we looked everywhere. Um, and that pool of capital was more interested, they thought, in CBD because it could go more places. It, it was more aligned or akin to legacy industries 
Um, and I really argued against it. We, we made one small investment into a CBD company. It's the only zero in my, in my portfolio in cannabis. And, um, it, you know, it, it was terrifying. So, um, let me, let me be more specific to really help your, your folks. When a new place lights up, people think there's going to be a market and likely there is. Um, but the nature of the commodities being a race to zero or a race to cost, and the devil being in the details, such as does a does it a particular geography? Let's just say Germany, because this is evolving quickly over there. Um, does this geography allow for biosynthesized cannabinoids to be used? That's a huge question, and people don't really realize how big that is. But you know, Tylenol originated from a, a type of tree bark, the active ingredient in Tylenol, and we don't strip birch trees and then boil it down to, um, to, to cure a headache uh, these days. Of course we don't. It's, it's a biosynthesized, or chemi- in that case, a chemically synthesized product. And cannabis will go that way with a lot of its, its products, a lot of its form factors. Um, the question is when, for what use, within what population, and if you're spending 50, 100, or hundreds of millions of dollars standing up an industry or standing up a company um, on high-cost structures to recreate agricultural products, um, you better be damn sure what can displace you. And ultimately, consumers want an outcome. They don't necessarily just want to get blotto or or um, high or messed up, whatever. Um, most consumers are, are seeking an outcome. They want anxiety relief. They want to sleep better. They want a, a more holistically wonderful life. And um, as we evolve, as the industry, the cannabis industry evolves closer to the biopharmaceutical space, you're going to see those solutions uh, in greater professionalism, uh, in greater access. And some will include THC, which is the most highly regulated molecule in the space, and some won't. Um, All of the other downstream cannabinoids, whether they're harvested or synthesized, created in a fermentation tank, they, they they will become increasingly targeted. So there's kind of phase one of every geography where it goes from Ill, illicit to to legal to ubiquitous, and um, and of course the, the the traditional market still has lower costs and no testing and um, all kinds of <laughs> benefits as far as ease of access in in some some jurisdictions which creates an, another problem entirely. Um, but the, the net result is a very few number, a very small number of winners, a huge number of folks that eventually just want their money back and, um, and, and a good portion of folks that lose it all. Um, unfortunately, that's the game. Uh, you know, people often point out that venture capital at large 
has a 90 or 95% failure rate. And so you really want one grand slam, two viable companies, and then recognize seven losses. I think when you layer in regulations and rapid, rapid change and tax tax problems, um, the likelihood of success is even smaller in cannabis, even though it's a, a new industry. Uh, so may, maybe there's less competition. But uh, again, not for the faint of heart in, in the United States or elsewhere. And I would just point out that every country, even when you just jump from Portugal to France to the UK to to you know, Czech Republic or elsewhere, every country treats this very differently, just like every state treats it very differently in the United States. And, um, and, and that makes or breaks you. You know, I know, I know people quietly making a lot of money on CBD in France. Um, I, I know a family office that lost nine figures um, on CBD in the United States, and they're very sophisticated CPG people. In summary, the type of cannabinoid, cannabinoids that you can use over what period of time for what ailments is what's going to dictate uh, the marketplace and the longevity of the health of that marketplace. And that's really complicated to research. Uh, and I definitely wouldn't have known it coming into this six years ago. So Ryan, before we got started, we were talking about how we, we first uh, got in touch and that has to do with forced labor and the work that we've been doing here at the firm tracking that issue. And you recently started a new initiative called Fair Fixing, um, where basically you help cannabis companies uh, source um, ethically sourced materials. Uh, one example that uh, you've provided was was cocoa, right? Which um, is a product that that very clearly has a a problematic history as we've seen in in recent uh, legislation that made it all the way to the Supreme Court, I believe. So we'd like to hear more about this initiative and why you decided to look this way. And while we're on the subject, tell us a bit about how you go about establishing the, the ethical nature of a particular source and how you interact with the end users of these materials to to help them uh, understand what the underlying issues are. So the reason I, I started the concept and, and the company uh, that, that is coming around this uh, fair fixing is um, partly selfish. Um, as I said, at the onset, we, we try to generate returns while doing a lot of good. And, and then it's, it's large part opportunistic, but following the same trends and the same coattails that other industries are experiencing. So um, as I said earlier, the rapid change in this industry is unique. Um, the rapid race to the bottom, the rapid um, price normalization in every category from flour to chocolate to vapes and, and also otherwise. And so companies, even like Revolutionary, my the company that I co-founded, and many that I've invested in, they feel it's very responsible to focus entirely on COGS because they're showing their investors and, and proving on their balance sheets that, that they're frugal and, um, 
and, and they can generate returns on limited capital bases and, uh, and therefore limiting risk. And so a company that thinks themselves a vertically integrated cannabis company, you start growing and then you get into vapes because of the oils and then you get into the edibles because of the byproduct. Um, they go down a very routine path of throwing spaghetti against the wall. And if, it, if the chocolate bars stick, then they keep making chocolate bars as inexpensively as possible. As you said, there's legislation and, and all kinds of scrutiny on the chocolate industry, cacao industry, globally, because there's proven forced labor, child labor. Um, and other industries, say technology, are starting to catch up to this. Um, Apple shut down a, an entire factory in a particular area of China because they realized there was forced labor and, and terrible practices going on. Uh, there was just a, a big assembly in Connecticut uh, surrounding the construction and architecture industries, um, pointing out that low-cost building materials are often subsidized by forced labor. And so they're trying to change that from the inside out. Cannabis being such a new industry has an opportunity to not screw it up so drastically uh, at the onset. And I recognize we're better part of a decade through this, but at least it's not centuries uh, creating bad habits. And so what fair fixing represents first informally and, and it's formalizing pretty quickly uh, because the need is there and the want is there um, but it's really the intersection of two parts of my life. Um, I used to do a good amount in supply chain tracking in fashion and, of course, in, in diamonds, as I expressed, uh, with Clarity Project. And then getting into cannabis, it, it kind of blew my mind that this plant and its derivatives, um, which is supposed to represent peace, love, joy, togetherness, happiness, one with the planet, one with each other, um, and right every wrong, right? This is a, this is a social justice engine that people want to use to generate capital for reparations. They want to, uh, uh they want to change rules around expungement, uh, of, of, uh, nonviolent cannabis related crimes, all of which I think are wonderful. I think it's unlikely that an industry solves all of those problems, but wonderful nonetheless, uh, yet what was happening that really frustrated me was people would talk viscerally about cannabis being this engine for change while munching on a chocolate bar that I know where their chocolate came from and it's pretty darn ugly. And, um, and so it was, it just made sense to do this internally at Revolutionary as a case study um, to see what the cost is to shift over to, in our case, uh, chocolate from Republica del Cacao in Ecuador, uh, sugar from Native in Brazil. We're working on MCT oil right now and vanilla and cotton in our uniforms. And to help the larger brands in cannabis wake up because they either do it proactively or they'll, they'll need to do it in a hurry in the future. And that's a liability. So it's, it's fun for me, frankly, because my only dog in the hunt is helping these communities. Um, and so if someone turns me down, I, I don't really 
I only care because uh, on behalf of the communities, I don't care because of my wallet or my time. And, um, and I know it's an eventuality that any, any folks that don't want to do this now uh, will need to. And so the groups that are, um, are really excited about it. And whether they choose to be impact first or not is totally up to their branding. Um, but I really appreciate groups that see the issue, realize that cogs, non-cannabis cogs in a cannabis chocolate bar are de minimis proportional to the cost of the oil, the cost of the labor, the cost of the rent. So you, you might as well do it right. And, um, so that, that's why I did it was it's low hanging fruit. It makes a lot of sense and it absolutely changes lives in these communities. Now, how do we, how do we find these groups, uh, the, the sources, uh, and, and, uh, and engage them, uh, generally through, um, distributors that are looking for these types of companies, uh, because just, just by the nature of my desire to do it right at revolutionary, that does not make me an import expert, import, export expert, um, you know, with a country like Ecuador or Cote d'Ivoire or wherever else. Um, so I generally find the right distributor and then connect with the groups on the ground, uh, and validate it myself. Um, and, uh, and then we build a relationship from there, but I, I do not like recreating wheels. Uh, I like any solution to be as elegant as possible. And, uh, and, and we've, we've proven that out. So that's been really exciting. Uh, it's been really promising early days. It's the right thing to do. And to, to, to do this at this time, uh, in the cannabis industry, I think is, um, is really just preemptively rectifying a lot of wrongs uh, that otherwise would continue to happen, not because of malintent, but because folks are chasing kind of the wrong goal. Um, they, they, most people want rapid signals of growth um, to then raise the next round of bigger money. And that's great. Uh, and there are success stories from that strategy for sure. Um, but I really harken back and appreciate as an example jobs uh, desire with apple to make everything beautiful everything elegant really thoughtful and um and to slow down to speed up i don't think is a bad thing uh, ultimately to your question on the end users um my first company uh called Ephes, every person has a story was a early, early technology distributor and, and educator in journalism uh, and photography around the world before the cloud came out and dissemination of information was still really difficult. Um, but ultimately, the goal there was to more consistently connect donor bases to beneficiaries in underexposed areas around the world. And the same strategy is applicable to this. Um, you can connect the end user eventually or, or to the degree that the end user is interested uh, directly to the farms. And um, I think that in our generation, I'm, I'm 34, soon 35, uh, in my generation and, and my kids' generation, I think be it through QR codes, be it through RFID tracking uh, or, or new technologies, I think what is on and in our bodies are, will come under much greater scrutiny. I hope it does. 
because I think that it's short-sighted to stand up for something that you believe in while creating destruction through ignorance. And um, I don't believe in that. I, I believe in once you have the information, work to make the change. So that's what Fairy Fixing is doing. You've given us a lot to think about, and I think our audience will appreciate your perspective. You've worn a lot of hats, and certainly I want to talk for a minute about your role as an investor. You advise a, oh, every good investor. I, I tell this to my, my companies that are interacting with their prospective investors. You know, every, every great company wants to match up with great investors. And I, I think great investors are those that come with money and expertise and a willingness to teach along with the capital that they're investing. So can you talk a little bit? I mean, I've already gotten glimpses uh, from your from uh, you know, the last few minutes we spent together. But can you tell us what kind of advice you have for entrepreneurs who are seeking investment, who are seeking expertise, how to network within uh, the capital community, and also how to find the right kinds of partners? One of my favorite expressions uh, that I share with entrepreneurs often is um, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is now. And I share that probably once a week because about 20 times a week, people will ask me, how do I raise money from family offices? Uh, they ask me that because I was president of a group of initially 75 and, and we grew it to over 300 family offices. Um, and so people perceive that I have a Rolodex of folks that want to give them money. And I generally take about one or two of those calls a week out of 20 um, to have a, a funnel of, of opportunity, but also just to be helpful. And, um, and what they're actually asking is, Ryan, who will give me X number of millions of dollars? And not being a broker dealer and not being in that business, uh, very rarely will I make a direct introduction. But the reason that um, that metaphor is important is in order to attract great capital, I believe it comes from authentic relationships and um, an alignment of interest. And that comes at many levels, uh, that alignment of interest. And so you know, COVID is a whole new era of how people actually put the rubber to the road and networking. But um, I think it starts with curiosity and helping helping the other. Um, yes, you, the entrepreneur, need this type of resource, uh, generally capital, um, uh, badly perhaps. Um, but the person on the other side of the table is human too and interested and interesting as well. And I think it's those points of overlap that are most important to solidify that then lead to dollars and cents and targeted ROI and risk appetite. So I went, over, I went through with one of my portfolio company CEOs the other day, how I interact um, I, I handwrite notes every night to new friends. I journal every day and make note when I meet somebody so that I can then see uh, what we did together a year later 
uh, if we did anything together. And I can write them a note appreciating what we did over the course of that year. And this sounds really onerous, but it's, it's really not. Um, how many people will you meet in a year? That's X. How many people will you meet and do something with? That's Y. Uh, and then uh, extrapolate that further to uh, how many of those will have will become meaningful instead of just a stab uh, at at a project and and that Z and it's very few um, if if unless you're a dilettante in which case not much will be successful and so I really do think while it's not the answer most people are looking for of you go to this place and ask for this money and you get it uh, I really do believe that this is. This is a lifestyle. It's a dedication to, to uh, curiosity and curiosity through other people's passions that may align uh, tangentially to yours and then become your passions. Um, so th that, that gets me excited. That's, that's how I've built a career. I try to give you know, 10x the value to anyone that I meet <laughs> even interacting with a law firm that I found out cares about anti-human trafficking. We've interacted for three minutes leading up to this via email and then 60 minutes. So that's 20 times my time, my input to output. And uh, it's, it's because you guys seem interesting. I assume that you therefore have interesting clients. I assume that could lead to deal flow or friendship or adventure. So I'm, I'm totally game to risk that 20x on my time because you're sophisticated and we have aligned care, uh, aligned themes that we care about. Um, and that's the same in the investment world. Uh, I, I met with a company two days ago who is further along in solving a problem that I have cared about for a few years, which is diapers filling up landfills. Uh, seems so stupid to me that a kid's first impact on the world is something around 10,000 diapers in their first few years, not including all of the yogurt cups and all this other crap that our, parent, our caring parents are putting into the ecosystem. Um, I reached out to him totally blind. We had a couple people in common, uh, and, and now there's an opportunity together. Um, on that side, uh, or on, in that instance, I'm likely the, the funder that reached out to him. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need my money. Um, but we have significantly enough aligned interests that, um, that, that could start a whole new chapter in my life. And if you can turn that table as an entrepreneur, make yourself available, um, put yourself out there. Uh, I, I can't see harm coming from that. I can only see learning and opportunity. Well, Ryan, this has been a great, fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and I'm I'm glad that that um, that original that initial contact took place and and led to this. Before we we sign off, we we like to finish uh, our our episodes with with recommendations. It can be something you've read, something you've watched, something you've you've you've, you've eaten. This is the only question I prepared for in in your list because um, I wanted to give it thought. I'll give you four pieces of media. Um, my favorite book of all time is Tuxedo Park. It's a book about Alfred Loomis and the band of characters that he brought together after becoming hugely financial, financially successful, uh, leaving Wall Street and getting into the intersection of finance and science during World War II. Fantastic book uh, about the outcome of community 
in community thinking. Uh, every day, the only podcast that I listen to religiously is Robin Hood Snacks. Uh, I think the two podcast hosts who are are not friends of mine, I'd love them to be, but I don't know them. I just love their podcast. I think they are curious and interesting and interested and um, brief. So many good ideas come from, from that podcast. Another great book that I think about daily is Paradox of Choice from 2004, Barry Schwartz. Um, in a world of excess of everything, we need to realize what is important and whittle that down. And finally, The Art of Learning by Josh Waltzkin, um, former chess grandmaster uh, and uh, martial arts expert. Just a wonderful frame on how to train your brain to achieve uh, excellence across many forms of art, business, and culture. And uh, I, I think all of those things are can't miss, can't miss uh, forms of media. Well, clearly, um, clearly you did your you did your homework, and we we appreciate that. As as we're we're left with some solid recommendations, um, Jonathan. What what about you? Ryan set the bar way too high, so I'm I'm going to take it where I was originally going to take it, which is into the metaverse. So Fred and I, Fred, you know this. Our audience doesn't. That we've been involved in quite a bit of Web three projects in the last six months. And so I'm recommending a couple of articles for people who aren't that familiar with Web3 and don't know what's going on or don't understand why it's important. So one is a, an article in, uh, it was in Utah Business Magazine, and I'm, I'm based in Salt Lake, which is why these this has a Utah flavor. Uh, this article is called, You Will Have a Digital Avatar Sooner Than You Think. And it focuses on a specific company based in Salt Lake called Artifact that uh, just sold to Nike in uh, December of 2021. They create uh, you know, digital, basically clothing, clothing, and especially shoes to put on your digital avatar. And so, very interesting. And and I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm a little older than Ryan, uh, and so I've been in com the computer world since I was probably four years old in the, in the mid '80s. And so I think about uh, the things that I did. You know, IRC chat. Uh, I, I played in MUDs when I was uh, not in the MUD. I did play in the MUD, but also online MUDs uh, in, the, uh, in the 90s. And so I felt like I was uh, quite an early adopter for a lot of things. Then I went to law school and got really boring. Now I'm getting back into this technical world, right? Understanding Web3, crypto, um, NFTs, all of this. And so the second article that I'm recommending is, uh, I'm not even sure it's an article really. It, it, it reads more like a, a blog, but it feels very like a Web3 contribution. And this, the title of this one is NFT Community Dismayed by Artifact Sale to Nike While Noting Pre-Sale Shady Behavior. Long title, but very interesting. So it, it kind of tracks the sale, artifact sale beforehand. It's, there's some Twitter input. It, it's actually a lot of fun to read. And I love it because of the, uh, you know, Web3 is the Wild West again, right? Every time we develop a new industry, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of cowboys and cowgirls out there doing whatever they can. And nobody really cares about the legal aspects of things until the lawyers start getting involved, until someone gets sued, until the, the regulators start to slap down regulations. So for me, this it's a lot of fun. Like uh, as we've been riding the cannabis wave, the psychedelics wave, and now um, the Web3 wave, it's, it's a lot of fun to do what we do. And so the, my selections today reflect uh, kind of my, my giddy childhood curiosity about what is going on in the world. I have a question for you, Jonathan. Yeah, go ahead, Ryan. If cash starts getting tight, 
in the venture capital community, which is a big if, tighter uh, than this uh, record amount of cash willing to be burnt uh, that 2021 signified. Um, what happens to the pace of, of Web 3.0? What happens to these NFTs, their value uh, when, you know, the 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 bell curve of the population, not the uber rich, not the uh, destitute, uh, turn back to needing real jobs because the government hasn't given as much stipend as much stipend money away, and um, and and you need to focus on things like your roof and eating food. I, I just I really worry about the gambling nature of of all of this. So wondering if you have a perspective on the downside, not the asymmetric return that everybody talks about. Oh, I, I certainly do. I mean, at, at the end of the day, people who know how to grow their own food, people who know how to purify water, people who know how to hunt. I mean, I think about this a lot, right? To what extent uh, is the future pushing forward where we're forgetting uh, the skills we need if we have to retrench as a society, right? And so I think about this quite a bit. Um, and I don't know the answer. I mean, I think that People who are the idea of living in the metaverse or spending too much time there, you know, I mean, that's the that seems just uh, idiotic to me, right? The the dab people who dabble in and out makes sense. Capital the, the capital question is really interesting, and and I love talking with venture capitalists and people who think about monetary policy, right? Global monetary policy. We've had one or two guests on the podcast in the last year or so, and I've asked them questions because I. I, I wish I could understand the world better than I do, especially the how the fiscal policy impacts what happens to real people, right? The housing costs go up. Uh, you know, people start to focus on things that are, uh, you know, like you said, they're chasing heavy returns, but they're not they're not really learning any life skills anymore. And so it's a, I guess it's a really philosophical question, and, and I, I don't really have a great answer for you, but I, I appreciate you putting that to me and making me think a little harder about it. Do you have any thoughts to add? Um, no, <laughs> that's okay. That's not, not, okay. In, not in short enough order. Uh, it is, <laughs> it is fascinating. It, 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 it is a bubble. There will be more blood on the streets, uh, than, than gold running down. Just and, like with cannabis, just like with cannabis. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And unfortunately outside of the lottery winners, um, the, the de-risked larger opportunities, uh, will those victories will go to people already with money? Um, so I, I I hope that people don't get in over their heads. Seems like a big gamble. Yeah, and I, I actually attended a conference in Salt Lake uh, a couple of months ago, and there was a guy from the Philippines who had started a DAO that was providing some kind of content for an online game. But the DAO, so the DAO concept overlaid on on top of this is very interesting, right? We're not just talking about NFTs. We're not talking about cryptocurrencies. We're talking about, uh, you know, the community and the way that the community contributes and the community shares in profits. And, and to the extent that they can pull those profits out into real world cash is very interesting. And I don't have a great handle on it yet, but I continue to dive in and try to figure out where everything fits and, and ultimately what's good. You know, I mean, is it better for people in the Philippines who are sitting in slums with their cell phones, mining some kind of, some kind of uh, fake currency for, a, uh, you know, for somebody's avatar 
uh, versus uh, whiling away their time in a field for for pennies a day. Right? I don't know what the answer to that is, right? But if they have a choice between one or the other, it's probably better than having no choice. Choice wins. So, Fred, we're back to you. Thought-provoking conversation. These are some some very serious questions. I have two recommendations today, and one uh, follows um, your your lead. Um, there's an article that came out in the WIPO magazine, and that's the um, the World Intellectual Property Organization. Um, and the title is "Non Fungible Tokens, NFTs, and Copyright." written by Andres Guadamus, uh, who's a, a professor in, in the UK. Um, and um, I, I think this is a, a, a great example of, of the, the kind of content that, um, or, or, or some of the content that I'm finding very interesting, right? Putting aside some of the, some of the big questions that are very important, there's also these, these very practical questions, right? I mean, I'm still... Uh, my jury is still out when it comes to NFTs and 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 what the what they will ultimately mean um, to the to the world economy and society at large. But there are issues that that are coming up, and uh, as a practical matter, as as someone who does a fair bit of intellectual property work, um, it's it's important to to keep track of what's happening. And this was a, a very interesting uh, article, right? Like like how do you it, it, it touches upon that issue of, of how do you classify um, some of these um, phenomena that are that are emerging uh, from the point of view of, of, of intellectual property. The same goes right for uh, all, all sorts of other uh, areas of the law. You know, what are the what's ta- the, the, the tax treatment? What's the um, you know what kind of property is it? Um, so so anyway, we'll be putting up the the link. Um, but again, non-fungible tokens and copyright. And the second recommendation, um, somewhat self-serving, but Harris Birkin has a new blog, the Psychedelics Law Blog. Certainly, if you've read our our other blogs, the China Law Blog, the Canada Law Blog, um, take a look at this one. Uh, or if you have not, but have an interest in, in psychedelics or are just curious about what, what, what psychedelics are, are about um, and what the legal framework is um, for them. Uh, take a look. So with that, Ryan, I'd like to thank you once again for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for those recommendations and for, for posing the, those um, uh, questions that, that are definitely going to keep me thinking. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.